symphony every Friday. Happy endings are the rules. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. Today is Tuesday, November the 25th. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Yes, November the 25th, 2008. My God, it's turkey time. Oh, dear. Let's see. I'm preempted Thursday morning. I had this list of all the things that I'm thankful for. Yes, at the risk of being optimistic. Yes, uh, we know how that feels. Uh, the minute we're optimistic around this station... You know, just just wait, just wait six months and <laughs> it will all change. Anyway, I think there's no end of things to be grateful for, you know. Uh, there's always blue eyes and pizza and all that good stuff. Uh, and we have a sane man coming to the White House. Uh, he appears sane so far, intelligent. Personally, he did win my regard when he spoke of his wife's mother, Marion Robinson. He said that he felt she, Marion Robinson, he said, was the unsung hero of his campaign. Yes, he knows how to win the hearts of women of a certain age. Just think of that. He has two daughters and a wife and his wife's mom all living at the White House, I hear. I guess this is a guy who's not uh, not scared of women. You know how that goes. He may even think it's a good idea to consult them. They say that the uh, rulers used to do that. They'd go to what was called a Sibel uh, and ask for advice. You know, there were these old women <laughs> who sat around, figured things out. Uh you, Tarzan, me, Jane. Ah, oh, man, smart woman, smarter. It's funny. I remember trying to explain to some students once, they got very angry, that men had this wonderful capacity for action, you know, made them such terrific engineers. But as one old woman once said, out on the islands, they were blowing up the islands, you know, with those uh, bombs. They were practicing the atomic bomb. One of the old women on one of those islands out there, she said, these American men, she said, they're so smart if they only knew what to be smart about. In other words, uh, you have to ask a woman, to what end do we do these things? Uh, of course, we do it so that uh, the children have better, more beautiful lives. It's so simple. But... For some reason or another, uh, the guys get caught up, you know, and get caught up in the action. <laughs> the action becomes the goal, the action itself. Um, Barack Obama said that he felt that uh, uh, his um, 
mother-in-law, Marion Robinson, um, had a perhaps deeper, deeper sense of history. She was raised in the 1950s. She lived on Chicago's south side. Uh, his upbringing was pretty beatific out there in Hawaii in comparison. Uh, his generation is being called the Joshua generation. It was a very interesting, it's nice to have a hook to hang it on, yes, the Joshua generation. The editor of the New Yorker used that uh, as the title of his article in the New Yorker for 17 November 2008. That's a memorial issue. I got some extra copies. I finally found them over at Pegasus Books. Uh, the whole issue is full of Obama. Yes, Obama mania. <laughs> it's, uh, what is it? Uh, David Remnick is the editor. And, uh, they include another important essay in that issue by George Packer. Another very, uh, significant journalist. His article is titled The New Liberalism. It's all about this economic tsunami. It's going down, yes. <laughs> maybe the maybe the event of the century, maybe not. Anyway, the difference in generations fascinates me. Uh I think of Jesse Jackson in tears. He's part of the uh Moses generation uh i think of uh barack's mother a white woman born in kansas you know uh, a political radical who married his father a native of kenya after his father's death in a car accident she married an indonesian at the convention we saw barack obama's sister the child of the indonesian father She's also a, a person of mixed race. Barack's best joke, you know, was when they talked about getting uh, their puppy from a shelter. They said, yes, they were going to go to the shelter to get their uh, dogs, you know, so that uh, they'd get a mutt like uh, himself. I remember jabbering about the Creole culture, but that stuff... That stuff is incredibly complicated and uh, terribly complex. Ever since uh, Tom Jefferson, Tom and Sally, uh, Sally Emmings and Tom, I think uh, that is the story of America. Tom and Sally are the parents of the nation. It's interesting, this stuff in the Remnick article, all about his mother. She loved the film Black Orpheus, the mother of uh, Barack Obama. You remember that beautiful film, Black Orpheus? It's poetic, it's lyric, it's art. Of course, Barack himself found the movie patronizing. He, he thought that it patronized the so-called childlike characters. Let's see. Let me read you that bit. Uh, this is in the article by David Remnick in the New Yorker for 17 November. Remnick writes, Obama's mother was an earnest and high-minded idealist. Uh, quote from his book, a lonely witness for secular humanism, 
a soldier for the New Deal, the Peace Corps, position paper liberalism, end of quote from Barack's book. With Barack's father gone, she emphasized, even sentimentalized blackness to her son. She loved the film Black Orpheus, which her son later found so patronizing to the childlike characters, he wanted to walk out of the theater. <laughs> she would bring home the records of Mahalia Jackson, the speeches of Martin Luther King. To her, quote from Barack, every black man was Thurgood Marshall or Sidney Poitier. Every black woman was Fannie Lou Hamer or Lena Horne. To be black was to be the beneficiary of a great inheritance, a special destiny, glorious burdens that only we were strong enough to bear. <laughs> I'm breaking into David Remnitz's article. I remember my own mother and her passion for Paul Robeson. Uh, I remember listening to his uh, Othello records. I loved his Shakespeare. That was so special. Uh I remember one time when I was a high school teacher in Oakland, my black student said, what's the matter with you? How come you got all this Paul Roberson, Du Bois stuff and all this uh, Richard Wright stuff? And they said, what is it with you? You want to be black? I said, well, would that be wrong? <laughs> Most of them said, yes, that would be all wrong. Should be with your own, they said. It's funny. Um, it wasn't any use pointing out to them that uh, I was a mixed-race person because, of course, I look white and therefore live white in our culture. Um, as a teenager in Hawaii, I'm going back to the Remnick article. As a teenager in Hawaii, Obama suffered less from outright discrimination than from the sense that something wasn't quite right. He was put off by the white girls who told him about their affection for Stevie Wonder, by the older white men who told him he was cool. Surrounded mainly by white relations and friends, Obama looked for a mentor. Holed up in his room, ignoring his homework, he read James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, Langston Hughes, Richard Wright, W.E.B. Du Bois, he tried to, quote from Barack, reconcile the world as I'd found it with the terms of my birth. Mm -hmm. Let me give you another quote from Barack's book. That's Dreams of My Father. I've got that on tape now. Uh, I've got seven CDs. I'm listening to the tapes uh, as read by Barack Obama himself. Anyway... Uh, on the subject of his reading in school, he goes on to say, There was no escape to be had. In every page of every book, in Bigger Thomas and Invisible Men, I kept finding the same anguish, the same doubt, a self-contempt that neither irony nor intellect seemed able to deflect. Even Du Bois' learning and Baldwin's love and Langston's humor eventually succumbed to its corrosive force. Each man finally forced to doubt 
art's redemptive power. Each man, each writer, finally forced to withdraw, one to Africa, one to Europe, one deeper into the bowels of Harlem, but all of them in the same weary flight, all of them exhausted, bitter men, the devil at their heels. Only Malcolm X's autobiography seemed to offer something different. His repeated acts of self-creation spoke to me. Okay, that's the end of the Baroque passage, and David Remnick goes on to write in his article in the New Yorker, November 17th. Ah, right. The autobiography of Malcolm X did not turn Obama into a black nationalist or a street preacher, but it did provide a literary and personal template. The story of the young black man who flirts with dissolution and through reading and determination realizes his potential. It is the template of many such books, including Claude Brown's Man-Child in the Promised Land, Junkie, Pothead. Obama wrote, quote, That's where I'd been headed, the final fatal role of the young would-be black man, end quote. Here I'm cutting in with my own commentary. I remember James Baldwin writing that he had been headed for the streets for life as a junkie or pimp, something like that. Uh, he found a home, well, a hiding place, in the church, the storefront church where he preached. And then finally, uh, in literature and uh, in flight to Europe, to France, um, we all of us find yes a way out i think it's gertrude stein who says genius is what happens when you're looking for a way out <laughs> anyway david remnick goes on to write obama of course never suffered like the young malcolm little uh, or claude brown those are the characters in the books Honolulu in the 70s was not Lansing in the 30s or Harlem in the 40s. But the key difference was in the nature of his quest for identity. To be black was for him as much a matter of aspiration as of inheritance. It was an identity he had to seek out and master. When Obama shared his adolescent reading with some African-American friends, one told him, I don't need no books to tell me how to be black. From then on, Obama decided to keep his explorations to himself and, quote, disguise my feverish mood, unquote. Now, I have to break in here again and say, if I heard one student say that, I heard a dozen students say that back in the 60s and 70s. They'd look at me and say, I don't need no books to tell me how to be black. (laughs) 
I guess, I guess it was a futile effort. I was one of those missionary types, you know, going into the schools in the 60s and 70s, thinking that James Baldwin would be, uh, what is that, uh, a mentor for students. And, of course, sometimes it was. David Remnick goes on to write in his essay, Sometimes, as one reads dreams from my father, it's hard to know where the real angst ends and the self-dramatizing of the backward glance begins. But there is little doubt that Obama was at sea, particularly where race was concerned. To ease that pain, to, quote, flatten out the landscape of my heart, unquote, he would do what kids sometimes do. He drank, smoked grass, and in his unforgettably offhand formulation, he did, quote, a little blow, unquote, when he could afford it, quote again. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Now that he's elected, we can go back and look at these things. I'm interrupting David Remnick again. Uh, I just wanted to remind everybody that this is a real person we've got in the White House. A guy that, you know, let his car rust out with a hole in the bottom of his car, according to his wife, you know. That first car, she said, was pretty awful. Okay. Anyway, the book that he wrote when he was 33 tells us a lot about uh, this wonderful uh, guy that we've got in the White House. Remnick goes on to write what Obama did learn in those days was the strategic benefit of a calm and inviting temperament. When his mother came to his room one day, prepared to remonstrate with him about his weak performance in school and the hazy direction that his life was taking, he flashed her, as he recalls, a quote, a reassuring smile and patted her hand and told her not to worry. <laughs> Unquote. He didn't get his back up. He didn't yell. People he was learning were satisfied as long as you were courteous and smiled and made no sudden moves. They were more than satisfied. They were relieved. Such a pleasant surprise to find a well-mannered young black man who didn't seem angry all the time. <laughs> Honest to Pete, this is so funny. I, I think this is wonderful, this article by David Remnick showing, telling us how Barack Obama came, came to get the Zen, the Zen, uh, style that he has, uh, I want to go back to a little section about the Moses generation, the generation that uh, that led to the Joshua generation, the new script, the culmination. Uh, actually, yeah, there's a there was a speech that's quoted here in which Obama paid tribute to the Moses generation. Yeah, that was uh, March. 2007, a few weeks after he announced his candidacy for president. 
That was when he explicitly inserted himself in the timeline of American racial politics. It was at uh, the Brown Chapel AME Church in Selma, Alabama. He joined older civil rights leaders and churchmen commemorating the voting rights marches a generation ago. Right, that's 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years ago, the Moses generation, Martin died. Let's see. From the pulpit, says David Remnick, from the pulpit, Obama paid tribute to the Moses generation, to Martin Luther King and John Lewis, to Anna Cooper and the Reverend Joseph Lowry, the men and women of the movement who had marched and suffered, but who, in many cases, didn't cross over the river to see the promised land. I interrupt here, yes. Uh, as Martin said, I may not get there with you. I may not get there with you, but uh, as a people, he said, we will get there. Obama thanked them and praised their courage and honored their martyrdom. But he spent much of his speech on his own generation, the Joshua generation, and he tried to answer this question, the question, what's called of us? Life has improved for African Americans, but we shouldn't forget that better is not good enough. Discrimination still existed. History was being forgotten. Schools were underfunded. Citizens left uninsured, especially minorities. People were looking for, quote, that Ofra money. But they'd forgotten the need for service, for discipline, for political will. Uh, there in Selma, Obama evoked a narrative for what lay ahead. In that narrative, Obama was not a patriarch, not a prophet, but the suggestion was distinct. He was the prophesied, uh, I'd call it a culmination, right, yes, uh, Remnick calls it a culmination too, yes, somewhere in here. I'm here, he said. Because you all sacrificed for me, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Then he described the work that lay ahead for the Joshua generation and implicitly positioned himself at its head as its standard bearer. Ah, Obama embarked on a long, exhausting quest for the Democratic nomination, determined to avoid making race a singular theme of his day-to-day -day campaigning. His issues were Iraq, the economy, health care, the environment, issues with no identity attached. But as he prepared for the Democratic Convention, Obama began to feel the weight of his historic distinction. Okay, I'm going to skip all the material here uh, about his political political strategist David Axelrod, his speech writer. Okay, so many things. Check this out. Those of you who like to, uh, you know, find articles and essays that are historic enough to keep forever, I recommend you go and get this, uh, this issue of the New Yorker for November 17th. 
They've got a special cover on it uh, as a uh, uh, a special issue. Um, once again, David Remnick is the editor, and uh, he's written the central article called The Joshua Generation, and George Packer has written an amazing piece, uh, which I will try to get to um, maybe next time, called, yes, the, the liberal, the new liberalism, how to do the FDR thing. I think, let me just, just for fun, just, just for contrast, before I go back to the Joshua generation, let me give you one little, little dollop. Last night I was reading these wonderful fireside chats by Franklin Roosevelt. And uh, he says so many things that sound like Obama. This is uh, July 1933. Roosevelt's talking about common cause and the social contract and now we have to work together, you know. And uh, FDR said uh, in a fireside chat, he says, when Andrew Jackson, old hickory, died, someone asked, will he go to heaven? And the answer was, he will if he wants to. If I am asked whether the American people will pull themselves out of this depression, I answer, they will if they want to. The essence of the plan is a universal limitation of hours of work per week for any individual by common consent, a universal payment of wages above the minimum, also by common consent. I cannot guarantee the success of this nationwide plan, but the people of this country can guarantee its success. I have no faith in cure-alls, but I believe that we can greatly influence economic forces. And I have no sympathy with the professional economists who insist that things must run their course and that human agencies can have no influence on economic ills. One reason is that I happen to know that professional economists have changed their definition of economic laws every five or ten years for a long time. But I do have faith and retain faith in the strength of common purpose and in the strength of unified action taken by the American people. Yes, <laughs> that's Franklin Roosevelt's fireside chat. Now we've got Barack Obama telling us, yes, we can. We can do what is needed. Uh, and we can pull ourselves out of this depression the same way we pulled ourselves out of the uh Depression in the 1930s. Uh, let's see what else I wanted to tell you about this wonderful article. Go out and get uh, the copy of the 17 November New Yorker. I found copies at Pegasus Books on Shattuck. Uh, I think for school teachers, you really will need this for your high school students. Uh, let's see. What I like is the very first paragraph of David Remnick's article where he says that Barack Obama ran his campaign largely on language. How do you like that? The man didn't have a movement. He seems to be the movement. But just with the use of language, he created a movement inspired by himself. Let us hope that, uh, oh, that the, uh, so-called followers uh, stick with him. Let's see. Remnick says, uh, he ran largely on language on the expression of a country's potential, 
on the self-expression of a complicated man who could reflect and lead that country and a powerful thematic undercurrent of his oratory and prose was race not race as invoked by his predecessors in electoral politics or in the civil rights movement not race as an insistence on tribe or on redress rather obama made his biracial ancestry a metaphor for his ambition to create a broad coalition of support to rally americans behind a narrative of moral and political progress obama was not its hero but he just might be its culmination yes we can folks once again 17 november issue of the new yorker a lot of good material in there biographical and autobiographical material uh on Barack Obama the man of the hour this has been Jennifer Stone i think i'm preempted thursday be back on the air again this time next tuesday till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can after the US invasion who's profiting from the occupation of Afghanistan award-winning journalist Pratap Chatterjee reported from Afghanistan immediately following the invasion and has returned to look at profiteering by private military contractors as part of a multimedia collaboration between KPFA Radio and Corp Watch please visit the Warcomes home 7 years after the Taliban at warcomeshome.org